Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, February 6th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, education takes center stage at the Capitol. And members of Mississippi's congressional delegation respond to the State of the Union. Then, in today's book club, first-person accounts from former slaves in River of Blood, plus a Lifetime Achievement Award for the Jackson Southerners. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Senate unanimously passed a bill to give teachers a $1,000 raise and elevate the starting salary for a new teacher to $37,000. Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman says this effort reflects the vitality of the Senate. Well, it passed uh, unanimously. Uh, every member of the Senate was a co-sponsor. And when they got through, they got, it was a standing ovation to recognize the fact that, that pages are turning and there's a, there's a vitality in the Senate and some purpose, some commonality of purpose. And I think it's great. And I'm, I'm excited to be along for the ride. And will there be more salary increases as you go along? Yes, uh, but the next one... The next one will be our state employees. Um, I've, I've spoken before about this. We'll be sending down to the House uh, compensation from the bottom up. Uh, I am disturbed about the fact that we have over a 1,000 Mississippians working for state government that make less than $20,000 a year. The topic of early learning collaboratives is also receiving significant attention in the legislature. Education advocates are urging Mississippi lawmakers to expand a successful pre-K program that's not accessible statewide. Rachel Cantor is with the nonprofit Mississippi First. She tells MPB's Desiree Frazier the collaborative is highly or collaboratives are highly effective but require more funding to expand. The Early Learning Collaborative Act put very specific quality benchmarks into the law. 
So they have to meet all 10 of the National Institute for Early Education Research's quality benchmarks. They also have to be measured on something called class, which is a classroom quality measure. So MDE sends people into classrooms. They watch the interaction between adults and children. They measure if that classroom environment is conducive to learning. They also have to take kindergarten readiness assessments. They take something called the Brigance, which is a comprehensive assessment. And then they have local measures of quality. They might use checklists. They might use portfolios. But there's a big focus on making sure that this is not just having kids in classrooms. This is having kids in learning environments and getting them ready for kindergarten. There's 18 right now. Is that anywhere near what the state needs? So 18 represents about 8% of four-year-olds statewide. That's a pretty small program. So we have one of the highest quality programs in the country, but one of the smallest programs in terms of size. We would love to see that grow because we know it works and we know that that quality is there. So we want to see the legislature continually expand and expand and expand the program so that we can start reaching a higher percentage of kids. Rachel Cantor is the executive director of Mississippi First. Senate Education Chair Republican Dennis DeBar of Leakesville says an increase in funding may be possible. I think it's uh, the results show that, you know, the, early, or the collaborators are working. The quicker we get children to school, start learning. It, uh, definitely the results are showing that we're, we're doing good, doing very well. Uh, we need to expand it. Uh, we have 18 collaborators in our state. The more, the better. Uh, The funding is an issue, and we have money this year uh, for several things, uh, but we have lots of priorities. But uh, I'll be working close with Senator Hobson, the appropriations chairman, to to plus that number up because the results are there, and they're doing great things. Uh, They're spending their money wisely, and the public has an investment. That one-to-one match on the state tax credit is important, and uh, that's only going to make our children uh, be educated better earlier, and the results when they become adults are just are going to be fantastic. She mentioned there's a gap between the money that they are being funded and what they're um, able to come up with in terms of partnership. There's like a $14,000 difference. Do you think you'll be able to close that gap? I hope so. Um, you know, early in the session, you know, revenue numbers don't be coming until the end of, the, end of April. Um, There are a lot of priorities this year between MDOC, roads and bridges, mental health, Medicaid, but I'm going to be pushing for it. Republican Dennis DeBar chairs the Senate Education Committee. Coming up, members of Mississippi's congressional delegation respond to the State of the Union. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. President Donald Trump presented his State of the Union address Tuesday night to a joint session in the House of Representatives. Trump had been at the center of an impeachment trial that ended Wednesday after the Senate failed to meet the two-thirds threshold required to remove the president from office. Republican Congressman Michael Guest joined our Michael Guidry to discuss the president's message and the path forward for a Congress engulfed in partisanship. 
Well, you know, I think what the president did is uh, he wanted to first highlight the accomplishments of his first three years in office, and and I think he uh, he did that, uh, particularly as he spoke about the economy, about the creation of over seven million jobs. He talked about record low unemployment for African Americans, Hispanic Americans, uh, for veterans. Uh, he talked about the trade policies and uh, the benefits uh, of those policies. So uh, I think the president uh, wanted to be able to highlight to the American people, uh, particularly as it relates to the economy, uh, the things that he has been able to accomplish during his first three years of office. And that is the norm, I think, for many State of the Unions, uh, a president wanting to highlight what he, his party, and, and, and D.C. in general has accomplished. But it's a chant of four more years is not something you see every year. Within that, within the House chamber, is that something we should expect more of going forward? Is that going to be the tenor of these kinds of addresses in the future? You know, you know, all I can tell you is, is this: this was my second State of the Union address. Now, whether or not uh, going forward uh, we see uh, more. Um, um, issues of uh, more of a, a partisan uh, t- type of environment, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to see this with this country going forward. You know, I will tell you that uh, right now that it is a very partisan Congress. So uh, whether or not uh, that continues going forward or whether we see a return to more of a bipartisan uh, ship, uh, which is what I hope that uh, as we go forward, uh, as impeachment finally comes to an end, that we can start looking uh, at working together, Republicans and Democrats. Democrats uh, on the issues that are important to the American people. The impeachment of the president has been a highly partisan affair, as you said. Where is the place that we can return to some bipartisanship? What are the issues? Uh, what do we have on the table that can maybe bring both sides of the aisle together? You know, a, a couple of uh, major issues uh, that I see to where hopefully we will be able to find areas to work together, and there were areas that the president highlighted. Uh, one is transportation infrastructure. Uh, I believe that throughout this country uh, we have communities uh, who uh, have aging infrastructure issues, roads, bridges, water, sewage. Uh, I believe that that is an issue that can unite Republicans and Democrats. Uh, the president also mentioned, and I agree, and I think this is an issue very important to the people of Mississippi, rural broadband. Uh, We have too many places uh, throughout Mississippi and throughout our nation that do not have access to high-speed Internet. So those were two things that that I believe that we can find common ground on and things that I'm hopeful that we will be able to pass legislation, again, that can come out of both the House and the Senate and would ultimately be signed into law by the president. It was a moment that elicited a little bit more activity um, from the chamber. The the president said that if Congress passed a bill reducing prescription drug costs, he would sign it. Uh, HB3, named after the late Elijah Cummings, is something that would do just that. Yet it lacked a single Republican co-sponsor in the House, and it's been sitting in the Senate since December 16th. If this is a feature part of the president's agenda, why isn't that being reflected in the actions of congressional Republicans? You know, I think what the president said is that he would support bipartisan legislation, and this was clearly partisan legislation. This was clearly a messaging bill that was passed by the Democrats without Republican support. And there is legislation that would deal with uh, prescription drug prices to try to bring those prices down that does have 
bipartisan support, both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, this actual bill uh, would force companies to negotiate with the government. If they refuse to, then the government could impose an excise tax of up to 95%. And so what we would like to see is the ability for the federal government to work with uh, major prescription drug manufacturers to, one, bring drug prices down, but at the same time, we want to make sure uh, that companies are able to recruit research and development costs on many of cutting-edge drugs that they are producing. And we don't want to stifle that. And I believe uh, that uh, that uh, House Resolution 3 would do exactly that, that it would stifle research, it would stifle development, and it would prevent cures from coming to the market. Uh, the president is not going to sign H.R. 3, uh, but again, if the Democrats want to work with Republicans to bring down prescription drug prices, there are several bills that have been introduced with bipartisan support that would accomplish just that. In the current climate, is there a message that you'd like to give Mississippians as we head into a major election year, both your seat, uh, a Senate seat? and the White House up for grabs. What message would you like to give Mississippians about what we can do to get the country working together? You know, uh, what, what I am hopeful for is that uh, after today's vote uh, that will uh, acquit the president, uh, that we can begin to focus again on the matters uh, that the American public sent us to Washington, that we as Democrats and Republicans can sit down and try to find bipartisan solutions to problems. Uh, much of the year, uh, the legislation that major pieces of legislation that have passed out of the House of Representatives have been uh, legislation with little uh, if any Republican support. Uh, and so if those uh, matters are ever going to become law, it's going to require Republicans and Democrats sitting down, working together, uh, and finding solutions for uh, everyday common Americans. And that's what I hope that we'll return to. I hope that eventually we'll be able to return uh, to a more civil environment in Washington, D.C., uh, and that we will once again be able to work together for the American public. Michael Guest. Member of the House of Representatives, Congressional District 3, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us today. Michael, thank you for having me, and you have a great day. We reached out to Democrat Congressman Benny Thompson for comment on the State of the Union. His office issued this statement. Once again, Trump stood before the American people and lied with over-the-top dramatization. The president's speech and record does not match. Coming up in today's book club, first-person accounts from former slaves in River of Blood. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Today's book club feature is apropos for this Black History Month. It's a book about slavery from the people who lived it. During the 1930s, the U.S. government interviewed thousands of former slaves about their lives. In River of Blood, excerpts of those interviews are accompanied by the photos of those who shared their stories. Richard Cahan is an editor of the book. There was this thought in the government that these people were not going to live very long. This was seven decades after the end of the Civil War, so they were in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, and many of them actually were in their hundreds. 
And the idea was that they would interview them and get their thoughts on paper so people in future generations could better understand slavery. How many former slaves were interviewed at that time? Well, there were over 3,000 men and women. It took until the 1970s before all of these interviews were discovered. Many of them actually were in the Mississippi Department of Archives. There was a thought that about 1,800 formerly enslaved men and women were interviewed, but many of those interviews were never sent to Washington, and so researchers had to literally go to 25 state archives to find others. A little over 300 were photographed. That's the basis of this book. It's pairing the photographs and the words together. The photographs are kind of beautiful, simple portraits, and the words are very eloquent, simple testimonies. Both are important, but when they're paired together, it's almost as if they become three-dimensional. You see the words that these people spoke, and then you get to actually see who they were. You're a photo historian. Did you choose the photos first, or did you equally look at both to see what would be most impactful? It was a little bit of both. We went through the 300 photographs. I think we probably chose several dozen of them. And then we went through the interviews and we chose, you know, about 100 of them. And so we then decided which of the 96 we would put together. So I think it was a little bit of of both. Not all the photographs are the best photographs, but all the words I think are the best. And it's not that it's the most eloquent single statements on slavery, but they all work together. The book starts with formerly enslaved people talking about their identity. A woman says she wasn't sure where she was born or when she was born, and a man talks about how he was given away as a wedding gift by his master. And so you you get the sense how, how difficult identity was for people seven decades later. And then they talk about the day-to-day life in slavery, and then they talk about the violence that accompanied that life, and then freedom, and then eventually looking back at those years. These are first-hand accounts, and No matter how many times or how often you read about slavery, you don't get the sense of it as much as when you hear the actual words by the people who lived it. Tell us about some of the narratives that will give us an idea of what actual slavery was like. One of the formerly enslaved men, whose name was John W. Fields, wrote about how difficult it was to have his family broken apart during his years as a slave. He wrote, when I was six years old, All of us children were taken from my parents because my master died and his estate had to be settled. We slaves were divided by this method. Three disinterested persons were chosen to come to the plantation, and together they wrote the names of the different heirs on a few slips of paper. These slips were put in a hat and passed among us slaves. Each one took a slip, and the name on the slip was the new owner. I happened to draw the name of a relative of my master, who was a widow." I can't describe the heartbreak and horror of that separation. I was only six years old, and it was the last time I ever saw my mother for longer than one night. Many of these formerly enslaved men and women talk about their families and how they cherish their families and how oftentimes they were split up. What do you hope readers and viewers of this book, because as you said, the photographs are very much a part of this, what do you hope they take away from it? I think they'll get a much better sense of slavery. I think for most people, we learn about slavery in high school, and it's put in very political terms, the North against the South. It's put in big business terms, the need for plantations to harvest cotton and how the North took advantage of that cotton and thrived because of it. But slavery, more than anything else, was a human situation. And I think it's the humanity that rises from this book. And I think the photographs are really important 
because every page has a photograph and, and usually a, a paragraph or so of words from the formerly enslaved men and women. And I think when you see the two together, you connect it in a very uh, searing way. I think most people that look at the book will remember it forever. Richard Cahan is the co-editor, along with Michael Williams, of River of Blood, American Slavery from the People Who Lived It. Richard, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate your calling. Coming up, a Lifetime Achievement Award for the Jackson Southern Heirs. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. For moments in black history, we salute Fannie Lou Hamer. The civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer is known for her words, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, during her testimony at the 1964 Democratic National Convention. But the Mississippi native would also lend her voice to many freedom songs during the civil rights movement. Fannie Lou Hamer was a true champion of the people, and we salute her leadership. This has been MPB's Moment in Black History. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The Jackson Southern Heirs are a nearly 80-year-old gospel group and the first group in Mississippi to employ keyboards, guitar, drums, and bass instruments in gospel, establishing a practice that continues today. Their longevity, success, and influence has now led to the group being presented with the Governor's Arts Award for Lifetime Achievement in Music. Larry Morrissey of MPB Think Radio's Mississippi Arts Hour sat down with Southern Air Maurice Sorrell. My father was an uh, original member, and I followed him around for years, and uh, I got interested in the music side of it, and uh, I started playing drums, and uh, after a few number of years, um, one of our lead singers passed away, and the Lord kind of gave me a vision to go on the upper side to to start just singing, not just playing drums. So uh, since I think about 19... Not nineteen, two thousand nine. I started just singing, and uh, that's what I've been doing ever since. What do you recall about those? Was your father one of the original members of the group? I would say one of the originals because, like I say, he started back in the fifties, and uh, like I say, I would follow him around to the different concerts and stuff, and he was my inspiration. And the Southern Airs, they were around for a while before they became a recording and touring group. I think that's an important right. thing to bring um, up. They started out, the name of the group was called the Shaw's Southern Airs because you remember there was a clothing store down on Ferris Street called Shaw's Credit Clothing Store. And that's they had a theme song that went along with that. And uh, that's where they started the name the Shaw's Southern Airs. And later on in the years, they got the name the Jackson Southern Airs. So that's that's part of that history that I remember. And so this was a group that that mostly performed. Did they have a radio show at that point, or what? what, what how did it? How did the? How did their kind of touring? Yeah, they had a radio work? show that came on on WOKJ back then, and uh, each Sunday morning they would do their radio program. Uh, I think it was maybe about fifteen to thirty minutes that they had on. But uh, it was a popular program, and later on in the years, they uh, they got their own television show, and uh, they would sing different songs for about, I say, a segment of thirty minutes, 
and uh, they would have some other artists come on sometime to help expand the time on the program. And and back in the old days, the radio show was a really crucial part of kind of the the working life of a of a group. A group yes. T- tell a little bit about like how that how that got, kind of got them out there in that. Well, uh, it got them out the Southern Airs out there because they recorded a song by the title of Too Late, and that was one of their biggest hits that got them started on the national traveling scene. And from that point on, uh, some of the other members started writing different songs and stuff, and and they just kind of caught on to the uh, traveling side of, of the singing and everything. So gospel is is like any other form of music. It never, you know, if if, if it's going to be relevant to people, it has to has to change. It can't stay the same. So there's been a lot of changes in God. I mean, if people tune in thinking about, you know, what they heard 30 years ago, it's, it's very different. But it's changing uh, in some aspect, but traditional gospel will always be the same. It will be the roots. Uh, even the contemporary artists uh, are coming back to some of the traditional sound of gospel or taking some of the lyrics from the traditional songs and putting a different twist to them. People are looking for authenticity too, right? Right, right. that's right. How can you be more authentic than the Jackson Southerners, you know? <laughs> yeah, because everything starts from scratch here. You know, we uh, don't try to emulate anyone else and, and just try to be original. The Governor's Arts Awards will be presented at 6 o'clock tonight at the Old Capitol Inn. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter, and fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.